Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word as it comes to us from Mark chapter 15. You notice here that uh, Mark only has 16 chapters, and so we're nearing the end, right, in anticipation of the Resurrection Sunday that we will celebrate the first Sunday of April. And so this is wonderful preparation for us as we anticipate not only the Lord's death, but his resurrection. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away, delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowds came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he warned them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to him, Why, what evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. Amen. Thus, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please be seated. In history, there are certain people that are known for one thing. One thing that they have done, either good or bad. In fact, to mention their name is to mention synonymously with what they are famous for. Take, for example, American history. If I mentioned to you Betsy Ross, you would say American Flag, or Paul Revere, The Midnight Ride, Benedict Arnold, Traitor, Harriet Tubman, The Underground Railroad, Thomas Edison, The Light Bulb, Henry Ford, The Model T, The Wright Brothers, First Flight, Walt Disney, Mickey Mouse, Rosa Parks, The Bus Protest. Elvis Presley, rock and roll. Neil Armstrong, the moonwalk. Bill Gates, the computer. And we could go on. Men and women that are known for one thing. One thing that they are associated with and forever will be. And by the way, if you missed any of those, Mrs. Hines will meet you in the back for a remedial history course. 
And we could do the same for the Bible, could we not? Job, Cain, Samson, Delilah, Goliath, Nabal, Judas Iscariot. People that perhaps would have been overlooked or even unknown if it wasn't for the one thing, the one thing that they are defined by. Well, this morning we see another figure that if it were not for this trial would have been lost in history. And that is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem and Judea. In the Roman hierarchy, it was an important position. By no means it was supreme, though. Yet because of his role, he is better known than Tiberius. Tiberius was the Caesar during that day. But if you were to ask, perhaps today, in history, who is Tiberius? I think most people would give you a blank stare. But if you were to ask them, who's Pontius Pilate? Oh, I know who he is. And that is because we confess his name. We say his name almost every Sunday, do we not? Just like we did this morning when we say the Apostles' Creed. Confessing the truth of who Jesus is, we say that he was born of the Virgin Mary and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. In other words, he's infamous because of what we see in this passage this morning. At most, a few hours would define his very existence. And as we see, not in a good way. Last week, we saw the travesty of justice the hands of the religious council. And today in the part two of such injustice, we see another travesty and that of the civil courts underneath Pontius Pilate. And here we see the true nature of his character. How he is used to bring about the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, he is the very means by which God had ordained for us to be saved. And so as we look at this man, we ask that question, who is he? And we're going to see this morning four things about Pontius Pilate. We're going to see Pontius Pilate, the person. Pontius Pilate, the prober. Pontius Pilate, the placator. And Pontius Pilate, the perpetrator. First, Pontius Pilate, the person. As I said before, last week we looked at the religious council, and despite their false witnesses, they could not come up with a testimony worthy of putting him to death. That is, until they asked the question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? To this, Jesus will not deny who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the God-man. And with these words, they charge him with blasphemy, worthy of death. And yet it was actually they that were committing blasphemy, not him. In the passage last week, we saw that this place, this trial took place in the the middle of the night, the residence of the high priest. And so as we go on into chapter 15 in our passage this morning, we see that at the morning hour, no doubt when the sun came out, we can suspect that this would have been at about 6 a.m. It says that they, along with the chief priests and the elders and the scribe and the whole council, had a consultation. Notice that. 
that because of what happened at the high priest's house, that that was probably a delegated representative, representation, that they needed to have a full council. And so they gather the full council together here in the morning. But notice this was not a trial. There was no inquiry made. There was no questions. The plot, the fix was already in. This is merely formality, so to speak. Crossing their T's, dotting their I's. And it happens so quickly. Again, the travesty of justice. But they have a problem. The religious council, that is. The Jewish leaders of that day, they could imprison, they could flog, but they could not enact capital punishment. They could not impose the death penalty. And that is because they were politically subservient to the Roman government. And so they have to get the Romans involved. They do not want to get the Romans involved. They hate the Romans, but this case necessitates it. Because they do not want to imprison Jesus. They do not just want to flog Jesus. They want Jesus dead. It demonstrates the true nature of their hearts. Proverbs chapter 6 says this, that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And it lists them. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to running into evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. And as we see what the Jewish leaders are about in this passage, we see that they commit all seven of those things. The seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him. And yet off they go to shed innocent blood. But they need help to do so. And that is where our friend Pilate comes in. We see that they take him to Pilate there in verse 1. And Pilate was the Roman governor. The highest ranking Roman official in that area. And he essentially had one job. And that is to keep the land under Roman rule and dominion. To suppress any rebellion. Again, the Israelites were captives. And to keep the taxes flowing to Rome. As long as he did that, he was seen to be doing a good job. In fact, that's probably the reason why he was in Jerusalem at this time. During Passover week, as you know, the, week, the city would swell tenfold with those that would come to worship at the temple. And so the crowds would be massive. And no doubt it would have been an opportunity for rebellion. And so he was there to make sure all went smoothly. But little did he know when he came to Jerusalem that he would be chiefly used in the greatest event in history. Pilate was no friend to the Jews, nor did he try to be. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records several instances of Pilate's dealing with the Jews. And he talks about how Pilate would set up Roman images and effigies in Jerusalem just to kind of goad the Jews. The Jews, no doubt, saw those images as defiling their holy city, that there was to be no images but God. 
Yet Pilate didn't care. In fact, it said that he would set up tributes to Tiberius, the Caesar. Remember that the Romans believed Caesar was God. And so to set up an image was to set up, in their minds, a false god. And again, an ancient historian says this about that. He did this not so much to honor Tiberius as to annoy the multitude. We even have a biblical record of Pilate's dealing with the Jews. It says in Luke 13, verse 1, Pilate mixed the blood of Galileans into their sacrifices. Which means he probably had individuals, perhaps those that were enemies of the Roman government, killed, and perhaps even killed while they were in the temple worshiping. And just to rub it in, and to show his dominion, he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifice. Again, completely defiling the temple and their worship. All of this demonstrates the character of Pilate. This was all sport to him. In his mind, these were just little reminders of who was in control, who is the captor, and who is the captives. And so the Jews hated him. Yet in this case, they needed him. They needed his cruelty to work in their favor. He seemingly had the same desire for blood as they did. And so even though they would see themselves as complete opposites, we see that they're quite similar. And they are unified in their opposition to Jesus, the Holy One. And so off the religious leaders go for Jesus to stand trial before Pilate, before the civil court, so that they can put him to death. And here then we see Pontius Pilate the prober as he probes Jesus. It was early in the morning. Pilate was probably woken up for this and no doubt was probably annoyed by it. But at this time the crowds were already assembled and so he had to deal with this which he saw as a problem. But the Jews again have a further problem. Remember they had charged Jesus with blasphemy. But blasphemy is not going to get you killed in the Roman courts. Rome could care less about blasphemy. In Roman culture, there were many gods. As I said, Caesar was a god. Anyone could claim to be God. And so for Jesus to claim that he was God meant nothing to Pilate or the Romans. The Romans cared about three things, peace, paying taxes, and power. And so what do the Jews come accusing Jesus of? Well, they accuse him of all three of those things. We read this in Luke 23 too. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding the people to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Notice that. He is misleading our nation. In other words, he's disturbing the peace. He's forbidding people to pay taxes, tax evasion. And he's saying that he himself is the king. That he has a power, perhaps, other than the power that is invested in the Roman government and Caesar himself. And Pilate seemingly outright rejects the first two. Because if those were true, Pilate would have known about it. Those things would have come to his attention He would know who Jesus is, but seemingly this is the first time that he has seen Jesus or even has heard about this man. 
But that third charge, the claim to be king, was at least worth further probing. And so he asks there in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, just as he was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God, responds. He will not deny who he is, but he just simply says, you have said so, or it is as you say. Jesus was a king, was he not? But as he had continually said, he was a different king than any earthly king. He wasn't a king that was trying to sit on an earthly throne. His kingdom was a spiritual one. And though many accused him, as it says there, the chief priests accused him of many things, it says that in verse 3 he remained silent. This is something that Pilate quite can't understand. He's dumbfounded by it. Verse 4, he says, have you no answers to make? See how many charges they are bringing against you? And still, Jesus remains silent. And this is all to fulfill what we read of in Isaiah 53. That though he was oppressed and he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And it says that Pilate was amazed. He had never met someone like this before. There had never been somebody before him in his courts that would give no defense. That was not trying to stand up against the accusations. That third, we go on then to see the true nature of Pontius Pilate. And that is Pontius Pilate, the placator. Pilate, throughout this, demonstrates his true character. He doesn't care about justice. Just like the religious council before that were prejudiced and found false witnesses, so Pilate is not concerned with what is right. In fact, in the book of John, when Jesus says that I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth, Pilate seemingly scoffs and asks, what is truth? Here's the judge, the one that must make a judgment, and you would hope that he would judge according to what is right, what is true. And he asks the question, what is truth? What is right? What is that? He's seemingly a relativist, believing in situational ethics, that nothing is inherently good or wrong. It's all determined on the situation. That circumstances dictate What should be done? And even throughout this testimony, though he can find nothing wrong, in fact, in verse 14, he even asks, what evil has he done? Knowing that he is an innocent man, Pilate still does not have the moral courage to do what is right, to release him. And though he tries to push off this case upon the Jews, And says, why don't you try him in your own religious courts? And though he tries to shove him off, as we know in the other Gospels, to Herod. Herod would have been underneath him. So he tries to push him off on the lower courts, so to speak. Herod sends him back. And though his wife tells him to have nothing to do with this righteous and innocent man, Pilate still does not listen. 
Why? Because Pilate is a placator. He's an appeaser. He's a snake with no backbone. He's a chameleon that morphs to the situation. Whatever it takes to rid himself of this problem. What's right, what's true, what's just, no. It's what's convenience. Whatever it takes to rid himself of this problem. It's peace at whatever cost. And we see this even at the very end. As he perceives that the reason why this man is before him, verse 10, is because the religious leaders were envious. They had an agenda. Pilate sees through that. And he's right in his analysis. And we read that Pilate had a custom of releasing a prisoner during this time to the people. And so he tries to appeal to the people. He tries to appeal to the crowd. Knowing that the religious leaders have this agenda, he tries to go straight to the masses. Remember, that's who he's trying to appease. Trying to keep them peaceful. And he asks, who should I release? Should I release this man, Jesus, or Barabbas? And we read here that Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a rebel, a murderer, a robber. No doubt he was thinking, surely the people would not choose such a person as that. Who would want Barabbas? And yet, what do we see? That the crowds being stirred up by the religious leaders cry out, release to us Barabbas. And then he asks, well, what should I do with this man? This man that you call the king of the Jews. In verse 13, we see those haunting words and they cried out again, crucify. Why, what evil has he done? But the more they shouted, crucify him. Crucify. These are the same crowds that earlier, just days before, were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him. We want him dead. We would rather take a rebel, a murderer, a robber. Let him be released. Let him be on the streets. Let him live. But take this person and get rid of him. Desperately wicked the heart can be. And so we read here in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, notice that, wishing to satisfy the crowds, releases Barabbas, having Jesus scourged, deliver him over to be crucified. And so in the end, we have Pontius Pilate, the perpetrator, As many of you know, I work as a police chaplain. I've picked up a little bit of police language. And when police are talking to one another to keep privacy and not to use specific names, they talk about supposed wrongdoers as a perp, short for perpetrator. And so we see here Pilate the perp. Though he tried to stay out of it, though he tried to stay above it, though he tried to stay beyond it, Even as he tried to weasel his way out of it, he is very much involved in it. He's forever tied to this trial. 
and to his judgment to have Jesus be crucified. And he, along with Judas Iscariot and the religious council, are forever guilty for the death of Jesus Christ, for colluding together in this mockery of justice. And yet, despite their guilt, this was the God-ordained means from the foundation of the earth to be the way in which Jesus would be put to death. No, God did not cause the religious council or the civil courts, Pilate in this case, to be unjust. God is not the author of evil, nor does he prompt or tempt anyone to sin. All God did was merely leave mankind alone. When man is left alone, man will fulfill his wicked and sinful desires. He will do all of those things that Proverbs 6 talks about through the proud look through the lying tongue, through the hands that shed innocent blood, to the wicked plans, to the feet that are swift in running to evil, to the false witnesses, and to the lies, and to the discord. Yes, that's all God has to do. He needs to remove His grace, and mankind will do exactly what their heart's desire is set upon. And their heart's desire is always for evil, for wickedness. Those things that God hates. Those things that are an abomination to Him. And as I said, we see all of those in this passage. Sadly, all of those things are still seen this day. That is the state of mankind. And yet God did something about it. He hated those things enough to act. And acting he has. Yet he has not acted in judgment, though he would be justified to do so. Rather, he acted in salvation and saving us from that. John 3.17, all of you know John 3.16, but John 3.17 is just as good. It says this, For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Notice that God did not send his Son to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And God used the slimiest of individuals, the lowest of the low, the thief and betrayer Judas, the wicked and prejudiced religious council, the snake and weasel Pilate, in order that he might bring about salvation, in order that he might save the world. But the question needs to be asked in the light of what we see in here is this passage alone. Why would God want to save such a world as this? Or even a world like we know it today? How can you not look at the world and say that the world doesn't have problems? The world has terrible problems. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get disgusted at the world. And then even when you look at yourself, it's easy to get discouraged, is it not? You look at your own sin and your own shortcomings. And so you look at all of it and you say, what is worthy of redemption? What is worthy of saving? We could understand if God came to condemn the world. That would make sense to us. Yet we read that he did not come to condemn the world to save the world. Yes, even such a wicked world as we see here. 
Yes, such a wicked world as we see out there. And yes, such wicked sinners like you and like me. And this salvation comes through injustice. We see that so clearly here, the crowning jewel of injustice. At the very end, that a a murderous, rebellious robber walks free. Can you imagine that scene? Barabbas, whose prison cell would have probably not been far from where this trial took place. Here's his name being chanted, perhaps by thousands at this point. And he's probably thinking, well, this is it. He's merely awaiting for his time to be executed. And now he hears the footsteps coming. As they come to his cell. And he hears the keys being taken out and the door being opened. No doubt thinking, this is my time. My time has come to an end. It's time for me to be executed and to die. Only to hear these words, Barabbas, you're free to go. Free to go. Yes, free to go. No, don't you know who I am? I committed murder. I committed robbery. I committed crimes against the state. Free to go. Yes, there's another that took your place. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has taken your place. It's he that will die instead of you. And so we see here in this passage a wonderful picture. We see substitutionary atonement in its starkest terms. But there is an, another, not an animal, not a lamb, not a bull, not a goat, but a person, a human. And not just any human, but the Son of God, the perfect God-man. It takes us to the place of another, another that is not worthy, another that is wicked, Another that is rebellious. Yes, here we see the real injustice. And we ask the question, why would God allow for this? That the guilty, the wicked would walk free? The righteous, innocent one would die? Why would God allow for that? quickly we realize that we're no longer talking about Barabbas, are we? But we're talking about you and me. Why is it that such a person like me, guilty, wicked, sinful, would be free? And Jesus, the perfect one, the righteous one, would die in my place. How can that be? Why would God allow for that? And we don't know how Barabbas responded to this. It's probably not the question we should ask. We should ask, how would we respond to this? In light of what Christ has done for us. Because I know this, that I know Barabbas, when this took place, didn't say, you know what? No, I'm good. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to remain imprisoned. If Barabbas wouldn't do that, which you know he didn't, then why would so many do the same? Maybe even you this morning. 
as the gospel offer goes out, as the gospel message says to us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That there is another one that has taken your place. That he has given you the path of freedom from your bondage. Would any of us say, no thanks. I'm good. I like my sin. I like my bondage. I like my eternal death. I want to remain here in my prison cell. Oh, none of us would do that. If we would do that, it's only because we don't understand that our sin is truly in prison. That our consequences will face us one day. Or we don't know the true nature of freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. Let me say to those that are not believing this day, my friend, you will face your consequences much sooner than you think. That you'll blink, you'll be here today and gone tomorrow. And that your sin truly is imprisoning. It's no different than Barabbas in the prison cell. But I also would proclaim to you with the same boldness, with the same testimony of Scripture, that there is a freedom in Jesus Christ that is rich and free. That there is a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's Him that you must run to. It's Him that you must flee to Him. Flee to Him in faith and repentance. And like Barabbas walked free that day, this day you can walk free. And not only this day, but for all of eternity. Will you not come to Christ? Will you not believe that there is such a substitute for a person even like you? A sinner that has lost his way. A sinner that is worthy of judgment. A sinner that is worthy of death. But instead, the wicked one is set free. And the righteous one is crucified in our place. And if you do believe that this day, if you know of such a substitute, then recognize again the, the price for your freedom. And don't walk back into the prison of sin. Walk in the newness of life. Walk in the freedom that Christ gives. If you are free, then you are free indeed. And so this passage is for all of us, that we would believe in Christ, that we believe in the perfect innocent, righteous one, the righteous substitute that took the injustice, that took the guilt, that took the shame for me and for you and for all who would believe him by faith this day. This morning, do not we have a wonderful picture of this in the Lord's Supper, substitutionary atonement, the broken body and blood given for you and for me. Well, as we prepare for that table, let me end this way. At the very beginning, we talked about people being known for one thing. The one thing that defines them. And we see that Pontius Pilate, this one trial defines him forever. But what about us? What will we be defined by? My prayer is that for you, it would be that you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That the perfect and innocent one took your place. What greater thing 
could define us than that. Amen. Well, as we come to the table now, let us be reminded of what a cost, what a cost our freedom entailed. And Christ did so for us, those that are sinners. And so we come confessing our sins privately, and then we will use the confession of sins printed in our bulletins. Let us take a moment to pray unto the Lord.